All right, Merry Christmas, Grace Orange. I'm really glad you're here today. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. This is week two of our Christmas series, Cradle, Cross, and Crown, Seeing Christ in All His Glory. If, you, if you're able, please stand with me, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 2. What a privilege it is to read the Word of God in public. There it is. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those to who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the seed of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you, Lord, that we can read your word together. I pray, Lord, that as we we look at your word now, you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. Lord, I pray that you would unclutter our hearts, unburden our hearts, so that we could see you in all your glory by faith. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. So were any of you kind of shocked when you saw the sermon title for today, The Death of Christ? Now, yesterday, or the other day, I was with my parents. My dad was in the hospital, and we were talking for a long time, just hanging out. And my mom asked me, she says, hey, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I said, the death of Christ. And there was like this shocked look on her face, like, are you confused? It's not Easter. Now, some of you may have thought it was a typo. It's not a typo. Last week, we focused on the birth of Christ in light of his death and resurrection. Today, we're going to focus on the death of Christ in light of his his birth and his resurrection. We're going to look at the whole picture. Today is officially Christmas Sunday. Five days to go, kids. Five days. And we're going to focus, again, not only on his birth, but spoiler alert, his death, and we're going to take into account his resurrection and his promised return. And I know it does probably seem a little weird, maybe a little shocking on Christmas Sunday to be talking about the, the death of Christ at a time when we usually talk about his birth. Why would we do that? 
Well, we would do this because it is totally appropriate to do so. It is totally appropriate to talk about his death at a time when we celebrate his birth. And here's why. Because Jesus came to earth to die. Jesus came to earth to die a bloody death. And so it's very appropriate for us to be talking on Christmas Sunday about his death. I want us to see God's perspective on the incarnation today, God's perspective on Christmas, because it includes the, the birth, the, the death, and the resurrection of Christ and the return. He was born to die. So I want you to consider with me today the glory, the glory of Christ's death, how glorious Christ's death is, because his death is very glorious. We should, we should never take his death for granted, and we should never take the birth of Christ. Uh, for granted. We should never take that story that we hear at Christmas every year for granted. It should blow us away. The, the account of Christ being born should amaze us again and again and again as you reread uh, the narratives of, of Christ's entry into the world in the Gospels. It should be fresh. It should be amazing to us. You think about uh, the angel Gabriel being sent to Mary to announce to her that she was going to be the mother of the Son of God. She was going to carry God's Son. That should blow us away. You think about the interaction between Mary and Elizabeth and even the Holy Spirit-inspired response from the unborn John the Baptist. That should blow us away. You think of the, the angels coming to the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born and announcing to lowly shepherds that, that the Savior of the world had been born. That should blow us away. How about the, the, uh, the wise men, God directing the wise men to Jesus, and, and then Simeon in the temple praising God, and Anna praising God. And what you have in the Gospels is, is the effect of the birth of Christ, the effect of the incarnation upon humans. That's what you have in the Gospels, and it's, it's an absolutely essential vantage point on the birth of Christ that we must not leave out. In fact, that's what we usually focus on. What I want you to focus with me on today, though, is God's perspective on the incarnation. When you see, when you see the Gospels, you realize that that is the vantage point that we usually focus on. We rarely go to the epistles to focus on the birth of Christ. And, and you really have a, a unique vantage point that shouldn't be left out. Here's what happens in the epistles. Every writer focuses on the person of Jesus Christ. Now the gospel narratives focus on a lot of awesome stuff, but a lot of the effect on humans of the birth of Christ. But what the, the epistle writers do is, is they focus on the person of Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, there is no in-depth description of Jesus. You have that in the epistles. Before we get to Hebrews, think about this. Romans 1 says that Jesus is both the son of David and the son of God. Galatians 4 says, At the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Ephesians 3 tells us that God had, had uh, this mystery that was bound up and now he's revealed the truth of the mystery in the person of Christ who, who took on human flesh and he came for Jew and Gentile alike. 
Philippians chapter two tells us that Jesus during his incarnation laid aside the form of deity and took upon himself the form of humanity to die on a cross. Colossians one tells us that, that Jesus, in Jesus, in the person of Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of God. There's probably no more important place for us to go to get God's perspective on the birth of Christ than Hebrews. Next week, we're gonna look at Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. We're gonna go back to the beginning of Hebrews. But today, we're in Hebrews 2, 12, 10 through 18. And it's gonna give us a solid grasp uh, of the significance of Christ coming to earth, specifically his death. Now I know that dealing with death at the holidays is really hard. Some of you have been experiencing multiple deaths in your family at, during this time. That is really, really tough. We've had in our congregation a family lose a baby. We've had uh, parents die and we've had brothers and sisters die and and so if that's you you've experiencing very deep grief and i think it just gets heightened at the holidays when 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 death comes at the holidays it it's like the pain is worse you know what i mean it's like it gets worse and and if you're going through that we're we're standing with you and we're grieving with you and you know the pain you're going through but what I want you to see today, and I want you to see at Christmas, and especially if you're going through something like that, is that while you grieve death, you can rejoice in Christ's death. We grieve death. I mean, we, we rejoice at birth. We rejoice at life. We, we love it when, when a baby is born, but we grieve at death. We say something's wrong. This is not natural, and, and, and it's not. Man was not intended to die. It was sin that came into the world that, that brought death with sin. But I want you to see, I want you to see the, the, the cross of Christ as glorious. At a time when we are focused on the birth, I think that's a good time to do that. Everyone loves a newborn baby, don't they? Newborn baby, warm, cuddly, needy, Vulnerable, and we, everyone wants to hold a baby. We rightfully celebrate because the baby's birth is glorious, right? But no one, none of us likes to talk about death. No one likes to go to funerals. We are repulsed by death. We want to run from death. But what if a person's death actually saved a lot of lives? Then you'd call them a hero, right? This is the case with Jesus. We celebrate him as a hero. We mourn, we mourn people's deaths. But we rejoice in the life of Christ and his death because of, of the many lives that were saved and are being saved. And even today, some might be saved today. If you're not a believer today, you might become a believer today. But it, this is exactly how we should approach Christmas. Christmas is, the, is about the birth of a baby who came to die a bloody death on a cross and then be buried and then raised from the dead and then ascend to the Father, which we've seen in the book of Acts. In fact, we're getting back into the book of Acts in January. We, we, we've seen this. He ascended to the Father and the promise is he's coming back in the same way that they saw him go. And so we're dealing with not just the birth, the life, the death and the resurrection, but the promised return of Christ. First Timothy 1 tells us exactly what is going on, says that it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Save sinners. When someone dies, here's what we ask. We just naturally ask it, why'd they die? If they're very young, we say, why did they die so young with so much life to live? If they died in pain, we say, why did they go through so much pain? We ask, why did Jesus have to die? What is the glory in his death? What is the purpose in his death? His, his, his death is glorious, and, and these verses tell us why. The writer of Hebrews was writing to a group of people, primarily Jews, who had come to faith in Christ, and they were experiencing very tough times. Some of them were getting kicked out of the synagogue. Some were getting expelled from their families. Others were losing their jobs. Some would be in, in danger of losing their life. And he's writing them to tell them that Jesus is greater and better than any shadow, anything that was pointing to Jesus before. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than angels. He's greater than all. And he's telling them, you need to be assured that your faith in Christ is in the right place. You might be wondering that yourself. You might be going through times of trouble and you might be thinking, is, is following Jesus really the best option for me? There are a lot of professing believers that ask that question and sometimes don't know what to do with it. The writer is assuring believing Jews and others that their, their faith was in the right person. And they were encouraging unbelievers to embrace Christ. So if you're an unbeliever today, we're gonna encourage you to come to faith in Christ. He's the only answer to everything you go through. These people that he, the writer of the Hebrews who, who stays anonymous, I love that. It's really focused on God and who he is. The people he's writing to are uncertain about their future. They're wondering what is going to happen. So he's saying, look, you're not gonna, you're not gonna lose anything by believing in Jesus and proclaiming him as Lord. I say that to you today. If you're believing in Jesus and you're wondering and maybe your thoughts are just colliding, your thoughts are having a fight in your head and you're like, I don't know which end is up. Is it really worth it to follow Christ and proclaim him as Lord? I would just say this. The same thing the writer of Hebrews says. There is nothing that you can experience in life, there is nothing that you or I would go through that won't just pale in comparison, will just fade away to oblivion in comparison to the value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. There is nothing that you will give up in this, in this life that, that will not pale in comparison to what you gain in Christ, what you have in Christ. Last week we looked at the glory of Christ's life. Hebrews 2, five through nine, those verses literally encapsulated the whole scope of human history. You've got paradise ruined in the fall. Verses five through eight, God's original intent for man was that man would rule over the creation. It was ruined by the fall into sin and man has been experiencing the consequences ever since. And we are today. But verse nine, you see paradise restored in Christ. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, was made in a man in the incarnation. We see Jesus on earth in the incarnation and in that very same verse, we see Jesus in heaven in the exaltation. So Hebrews two tells us about a savior from God to us. And what these verses today show us is God's statement of why Christ came came to die so we should just thank right now just thank the Lord for the gift of a Savior who came to die 
These verses are, are, are amazing in their, in their scope. Uh, they, they, they really reveal to us five things that the death of Christ show us. Five glorious results of Jesus' death. Start in verse 10. The first thing we see, the first glorious result of, of, the, of the death of Christ is that Jesus is our salvation. He is the salvation of all who believe. And he's not just like, hey, there's a savior over there who you might want to look into as a good option for you. He is the only savior. In fact, the writer of Hebrews calls him the founder of our salvation. Verse, verse 10 says it was fitting. By the way, it was first it was fitting. You don't usually use those words with God. It's like everything he does is, is good. But here it's saying it was perfectly consistent with his character, what he did in Christ. It was fitting. Uh, all things are, are for him. All things are by him. He wants to bring many sons to glory. That's the idea of, 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 the, of believers being saved. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Founder is a very great word. It literally means leader. It means originator, pathfinder, trailblazer. Jesus blazed the trail for us. He, he opens the way to life with God. He leads the way to life with God. It can be translated hero, chief, prince, Captain, source, initiator. He is the leader in regard to salvation. He's the author of salvation, as Hebrews 12 says. Peter, when he's preaching in Acts chapter 3, you didn't think I was going to leave Acts out today, did you? On Christmas Sunday, how could we? Here's what Peter preached You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer. To be granted to you. That was Barabbas. But put to death the author, same word there for like founder, author, same word, same Greek word, or prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. Acts chapter 5, the, father, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a leader, as a prince and a savior to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins. So Jesus has led the way into heaven as our forerunner, and it says that, he, that God the Father made him perfect through suffering. Now, he's already perfect. In his divine nature, he was already perfect. His human nature was perfected, was, was completed through obedience, including suffering. By the way, God is making you the person he wants you to be through suffering. We all don't want suffering we want things easy. But if we had things easy, we wouldn't be made into the people that God is making us into, to be. And it's, the way, it's just the way life works. And so he, he was made perfect through suffering, we read. And, and what we get when we come to faith in Christ is, is that his perfect righteousness is given to us. Right, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that. It, uh, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We would receive his righteousness. It is imputed to us. It is put into our accounts. What we see in Jesus being the, the leader, the founder of salvation is that he wins freedom for all who are held captive in sin, 
into bondage. Now, in those days, in Bible times, uh, on their coins, in their writings, in, in inscriptions, they would take false gods and call them captain, call them savior. Hercules was one. He was called a champion. It's the same Greek word, archagos, same word for founder, for trailblazer for pathfinder he was called champion and savior and it was written on coins it was put into literature but we know jesus as the only savior people are are seeking a savior right now they're seeking a savior and 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 when god opens your eyes to the fact that jesus is the only savior then you see jesus by faith you know, just this week, uh, December 15th to be exact, there was a, uh, an article that said that British forensic uh, scientists have stitched together what they believe to be the real face of Jesus is. And so you can, you can look it up, you can Google it, and you can see that this is what they're saying uh, Jesus really looked like. And uh, he's not white, by the way. He's not Caucasian, you know. Um, but all that to say, it's like, really? Is that really what we should be focusing on is trying to figure out what did Jesus look like so we could have like a mug shot? No, what we need to be focusing on is, is fixing, like, like Hebrews 12 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I mentioned this last week. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking to Jesus, is believing in the Lord Jesus, whom you cannot see with your real eyes who doesn't speak to you in audible voices, but has spoken in his word. Hebrews 1 tells us, and we'll look at it in more detail next week, that God has spoken to us in his son. Long ago, he spoke in the prophets in many ways, many portions, but in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. You see Jesus by faith in his finished work on the cross. Simeon saw God's salvation. He held the baby Jesus. He held God's salvation. Well, Jesus is our salvation. That's the first glorious truth that comes out of his death. Secondly, he is our sanctifier. He sanctifies us. He sets apart believers for God's service. Verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. See, Jesus became one of us to do what we could never do, to die a death that we deserved so that we might be forever saved, that we might be rescued from sin. If you're a believer in Jesus, you, you get sanctified. At the moment of conversion, you get sanctified positionally in Christ. You are, you are holy in, in God. He has set you apart for his service. He has purified you from your sins. But you still sin. And you still need to come to him and acknowledge your sins. But he has... He has sanctified you, but then there's this progressive, lifelong sanctification that is going on where he is conforming you to the image of Christ. And I think our biggest problem with that is we look in the mirror, we look around at professing believers, and we have a hard time believing that it's really happening. It's probably uh, closest in our own hearts. We see our own you know, depravity, and we think, how is God really making progress in my life? And you take a longer view and you see, you see, if maybe you keep a journal even, and, and you see this is what God has done in my life. And wow, here's what he's brought me through and here's what I've learned and here's how I've fallen. Sometimes I've gone two steps you know, backwards, one step forward and two steps back and I feel like I'm always, always regressing. 
But what you can be assured of if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have placed your faith in his finished work, here's what you can be assured of. That God is progressively making you more like Christ. Even if you look in the mirror and your eyes tell you lies. Even if you look around to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and you think that it probably isn't going on in their life. Don't we, we question the, 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 the salvation of fellow believers because of what we see and because of what we hear. But what we read in the word is that all who are in Christ are sanctified forever in Christ and progressively being sanctified by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. So Jesus is our sanctifier. Also in verse 11, there's another thing. He's, and this might be the hardest thing for us to grasp with our minds. Jesus is our sibling. He's our brother. He's our older brother. He became a man. He is, he is the man Christ Jesus. He is fully God and fully man. And he is our older brother that brings us into God's family. We are made, he makes us brothers Verse 11, the second half of that verse says, that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. I don't know if that blows you away or not, but just to say you had a famous brother, okay? Well, just maybe, maybe just, I don't know, imagine that you have a famous brother, and it's like really, really famous brother, like, you know, I don't know, someone really, really famous. And you're like, I'm set for life. My brother's a, you know, a multi-billionaire, and hey, I've got a, I've got a famous brother. I'm, everyone likes me too. Most time you look around at your brother and you think, ooh, I got that one, can I choose another one, right? But Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Now here's what you gotta think about. Jesus came to earth to die for sin. Pascal called mankind the glory and scum of the universe. And, and a lot of times we see the under, underside, we see the, the underbelly of sin and we think, why would God want to save us? And we, we looked at that last week. But Jesus is not ashamed to call you, believer, a brother, sister, brother, sister. If you're female, you'd be a sister. If you're male, you'd be a brother. No, 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 no gender confusion there. He says, my brothers, uh, verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 is, was known by the, by, um, by the early church as a profound prophecy concerning the Messiah and his sufferings, the sufferings of Christ. And Jesus had told us in Matthew 12, Luke 8, he said, those who do the will of God in obedience are my brother, sister, and mother. If you do the will of God, you are, you're in my family. The will of God is that you believe in the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's an interesting thing to note. Jesus never directly referred to his disciples as brothers until after the resurrection. Until after his death and resurrection, and there's a reason for that. Not until he had fully paid the price for their salvation did they truly become his spiritual brothers and sisters. So what, what this is showing us is his full identification with mankind in order to provide complete salvation, complete redemption, complete forgiveness of sins. So you want Jesus to be your brother. 
even though that might scare you. <laughs> like, can I really be around that much holiness and, and still and not be vaporized? Well, yeah, if you're a believer, uh, the Bible tells us that Christ lives in you. So yeah, he's, he's not ashamed to call you brother or sister because he has redeemed your life from sin. He's redeemed your life from the pit. He has done what you could not do, and it's because of his love for you. This is good. This should thrill our souls. Psalm 22. Um, you know, you got the, the verse one, the origin of the son's words of anguish on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verses seven and eight, uh, the same psalm is the, the wicked uh, taunting Jesus on the cross. Hey, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Psalm 22 tells of the piercing of, of our Savior's hands and feet and how his bones were not broken and, and the game they played for his clothes. Think with me for a minute about the birth of Christ. You know, nativity scenes are, are awesome. I love nativity scenes. I collect them. I get them at garage sales all the time. Uh, they're just, you get them pretty good price too, and they're just beautiful. But guess what? Guess what? Nativity scenes aren't that accurate if you think about it. They're always like pristine. There's no smell of cow. Uh, seriously, do you have a, a, a nativity scene that smells like cow? And especially cow droppings? No, you don't. If they all look good. They all look clean. They all look awesome, right? They're just not accurate. <laughs> you could smell cow and other things there in the, in the place that they were. The righteous one praises God. Psalm 22, he, he, he praises God in the midst of being pierced. And, and here's this baby that was born in Bethlehem who had little fingers, 10 of them, little toes, little fat little feet, couldn't walk yet, uh, chubby. It's got to be like a chubby little baby, right? And, and got, a, got a head there, probably bigger than its, you know, baby's head is sometimes bigger. and Just, you know what I'm saying. And, and here you got, here you got, baby Jesus and those fat little fingers they were, they were made to be pierced by nails on the cross his, his feet were, were made to walk up the hill to Calvary his side was made to be pierced by a sword his head his head was made to, to, to shove and a crown of thorns into so Psalm 22 is foreshadowing the crucifixion. It's, uh, it depicts the excruciating suffering of a righteous person who, who, who calls believers brothers. Psalm, uh, Isaiah 8 is also being referred to here. And the whole idea there is that God, God had Christ fully identify himself with mankind by taking a human nature. He demonstrated the reality of his human nature by relying upon God during his earthly life. Verse 13, again, I will put my trust in him again. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus, if you're a believer, Jesus is your elder brother. Jesus is your sibling, spiritually speaking. He's the sovereign, perfect, sinless savior and, and you if you're a believer, are, are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
In fact, that leads us to verse 14, to see, really verses 14 through 17, sees Jesus, the glorious truth that he is our substitute. He's our substitute. Therefore, since children share in flesh and blood, he partook of the same. So he became a man that through death he might destroy the works of the devil, that he might destroy the one who had the power of death, the devil. So he destroyed the devil in his death. He tore him to shreds. He, 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 he tore him up. This, this verb, by the way, destroy, literally means like if you would defuse a bomb. You know, people risk their lives to defuse bomb, get the bomb squad go out. We hear Jesus, for Jesus, defusing that killer bomb of sin was a dead certainty. But with resurrection to follow and untold blessings for us who come to faith in Christ. The devil, you know, the Old Testament and even all the Jewish traditions in general just associated the devil with death. It's all about death. The New Testament is very clear that Christ's work destroyed the devil and his work. 1 John 3, 8, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And you're walking around going, well, you know, he's still on the loose. That's true. And you gotta be wary of his schemes, but he has been destroyed. Jesus won. Ultimate victory was won. All the spoils are not yet realized. You couldn't even really call the devil toothless. But Jesus destroyed the devil at the cross. You know, if you like Star Wars or other things, you could think of it this way. God infiltrates a rebel planet and he goes on a search and destroy mission. Did you, could, have you ever thought about that? The, the, the birth of Christ was really uh, God declaring war on sin and really God coming down to earth on a search and destroy mission. He actually sent Jesus to earth to destroy something. Now we say, well, he restores my life. Absolutely, but he came to destroy something. He came to destroy sin. And he didn't just come to destroy sin, he came to destroy sinning. The thing that so many of us are just so wrapped up in, so much of our time in life is spent thought, thinking about sin and not sinning or what am I gonna do about my sin or is someone gonna catch me for my sin or how am I gonna get free from sin? Well, Jesus frees you. You gotta keep looking to him. He, he came to destroy sinning. Christmas is God's invasion of enemy territory to rescue people from the devil and destroy the sin in their lives. God wants to destroy the sin in your life. Verse 15, deliver, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Feel like a slave to sin sometime? You feel like you're afraid of death? Hey, if I sit in my room and lay down and put my head on the pillow and start thinking about death, I could really freak myself out. That's why you gotta tell yourself the truth. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So you're gonna die. Your body's gonna deteriorate and, and you're gonna die physically, but if you have faith in Christ, you will live forever. And we believe that by faith. We believe that because the Holy Spirit has given us the word and we believe the word, not our own minds. He has delivered the chosen from slavery. He gives you forgiveness of sin. You know, um, 
Back in those days, the Epicureans said, look, all there is is the material world. There is no afterlife. So they basically lied to people and they said, look, you don't have to worry about judgment because there's no afterlife. So just do whatever you want. Eat, drink, and be merry and sin as much as you want because there's no judgment. And that's a complete lie from the pit of hell, from the father of lies, the devil. People are still thinking the same thing today. Well, there's no judgment. I'm just gonna tell myself there's no judgment, but guess what everybody's afraid of? God's judgment on their sin. Delivers the chosen. Verse 16 says, it's surely not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You should be thinking right now of, if you know the word, thinking maybe about like Galatians, where it talks about that those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. That Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That, That God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham and Abraham believed it. By the way, he will help you. If you're, if you're a believer in Christ, he's gonna help you. And you know what that means? That word help? It means to literally grab onto you and pull you off of a cliff. Or it means to push you out of the way. Like if, let's say an oncoming train was coming at you and someone pushes you out of the way so you don't get killed. That's what Jesus does. He rescues us. He rescues us. And he satisfied God's just wrath in the process. Verse 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he would become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. One of my favorite Bible words when I figured out what it meant. Mercy. See, the writer of Hebrews is now moving into the central idea, this analogy of the day of atonement. And it was so central to Old Testament worship. The the high priest on behalf of the people would would enter into the holiest place of the temple with the sacrificial blood of animals. He was covered in it. And this ritual had to be repeated over and over and over again every year. And it was a symbolic one, waiting for the day when the final once-for-all sacrifice would be made at the cross by the perfect sacrifice. History was basically turned upside down that day when Christ on the cross, uh, triumphantly cried out, it is finished. Paid for sin once for all. Effective for all who will believe. It was the work of God's hand and the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. What does propitiation mean? It literally means to satisfy. It's about God's mercy that that Christ's work of propitiation is related to his high priestly ministry and, and by partaking of his human nature, Christ demonstrates his his mercy towards mankind and his faithfulness to God by satisfying every requirement for sin and thus obtaining for all who believe full forgiveness. So if you're you're right now racked with guilt over sin and, and you're a believer in Christ and you are so burdened by your sin, you've got to look to Christ and say, thank you, Jesus, for buying my full forgiveness. P.T. Forsyth made popular the expression, the holy love of God. The cross of Christ, one one writer put it this way, the cross of Christ is, is the event in which God makes known his holiness and his love at the same time in one event. Now how could he express his holiness without condoning our sin? How could he express his love, excuse me, holiness without condemning us, without without putting us in hell? And, and how could he express his love without condoning our sin? How could God do that? 
Well, he was able to save us and satisfy his wrath simultaneously because he substituted himself for us. Satisfaction through substitution. The Lord Jesus. And by the way, satisfaction and substitution, neither one of those are in the Bible. Those words are not in the Bible, but they are Bible concepts. John Calvin wrote in his Institutes, there is a perpetual and irreconcilable disagreement between righteousness and unrighteousness. That is why it was necessary for Christ to undergo the severity of God's vengeance to appease his wrath and satisfy his just judgment. That is what was going on on the cross. Jesus paid a debt that we owed to God. He fully identified with us. He became a person. And we were objects of his love at the same time. And so by becoming one of us, he identified with us to the fullest. And God had assessed the debt. He figured out the damage. And he realized that someone had to die. And that was the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Last thing I'll mention is, is verse 18. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's a different word than help. It's not pulling you off the ledge. Here it is It is. It is, it is being with you in the midst of your temptation. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man as God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you, are, what you are able, but he will with the temptation provide a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Jesus is our sympathizer. He helps you, please God. He, he sympathizes with you in every pain, in every temptation, in every anguish of your soul let's apply this let's apply these things these, these really these five glorious truths go back to the first Christ's glorious death means that he's our savior he's the savior of the world uh, to all who believe he leads the way to life with God and so if that's you if you're a believer then follow your leader follow your leader Matthew 16, 24, it says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, repudiate himself, reject his own ideas, and take up his cross and follow me. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you're not a believer today, that verse means something. It means he suffered in your place. You can't get to God except through Jesus. There is no other way. And he's our sanctifier. He sets apart believers for God's service. So walk in the reality of the freedom you have in Christ. You have this progressive sanctification going on. You are sanctified by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. I, I love it that at, at, at Christ's birth, there are shepherds that are getting news from God. And you think about how little information they had. How little information they had to go on. And they went with it and obeyed. You know what we do? We demand the entire picture to be spelled out before we obey. No, God, you have to, get, you have to, you have to dot every I and cross every T for me So if I'm gonna obey you. Let's be more like the shepherds this Christmas. Let's just go off what we've got. You know, you can read the whole Bible, by the way. You get the whole thing, right? And obey it. The word of God does its work in us who believe. And he's our sibling. If he's our sibling, if he's our brother, that, that, then, then are you in the family? And if you're in the family, it's not enough to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to have anything to do with the church. It's not enough to say, I'm in the family, but I don't really want to know my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, you can't see your elder brother. You will see him face to face one day. But you sure don't want to see him face to face, and he's going to say, so 
What'd you do with those people I put in your place right in front of you to, to love and to care for and to walk through life together? What, what'd you do with them? Oh, well, I just ignored them. I didn't like them. That's not gonna, that's not gonna work. <laughs> you know, it's not enough to say I believe in Jesus but I, and I want all the benefits but I don't want any of the mess of being around people. You know, your life is not a nativity scene. I get it. I get it. It's messy. But you need people so much more than you know. And he's our substitute. He destroys the devil, so, and he delivers the chosen, and, and we just drool at the idea of committing sin. Our mouths water at the idea of committing sin. We are sin addicts, and we don't mind ruining our lives for momentary pleasures. And we get blinded, and it's a battle for our minds. So if he's your, if he's your sympathizer, and you know you're struggling with sin, then ask for help. Ask Jesus for help. Ask your brothers and sisters for help. Get to know some brothers and sisters well enough that they would actually know you and that you could ask them for help. At Christmas time, maybe more than any other time, we, we kind of run, run right into our absolute selfishness and our total depravity it's very easy to demonize our culture and say, you know, the grass is greener where I live or maybe on the other side of the world and you know what's happening around the world and right here? Man is raping and pillaging and murdering for his own advantage because of the depths of depravity of his own heart. It's happening in Orange. It's happening across the nation. It's happening across the world. Total depravity. You know what that, that means? Mankind is not as bad as he could be. We could be worse. We're not utterly depraved. We're totally depraved. We're as bad as, it, as you need to be to go to hell for your sin. None of us chose our total depravity, but we swim in it every day, and sometimes it looks like we love it. We are indeed the glory and scum of the universe. And total depravity leads people to act in total disregard of human life. That's what happened with Herod. That's what happened with Herod. He slaughtered all the male children in and surrounding Bethlehem who were two years old or younger in the days of Christ's birth. And it was all the more heinous because he wanted to kill the Son of God. And God would not allow his son to die one moment too soon. He had reserved him for bloody sacrifice at the cross. But you know, you and I both know that total depravity still leads us to act in total disregard of human life. We have killed 56 million babies via abortion in the US since Roe v. Wade in 73. We have to cry out for God's mercy. We're doing worse. We're doing more than that too. We're killing old people. We're killing babies. We're disregarding human life. And there is forgiveness only in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our only hope. One day, every, every one of the redeemed will be fully free from, full de, from total depravity. Until that day, we rest in this, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We see the absolute necessity for Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. We can't live without him. Only he can meet our need because of our sin. He is the only Savior. Everyone needs this Savior. And it remains for us 
in light of this glorious death, this, this Savior who became our salvation and our sanctifier and our sibling and our substitute and our sympathizer, it is now ours to live a life that brings glory to him. And Lord God, thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus. Lord, may we not celebrate Christ's birth flippantly this year. For whoever we gather with or whatever we do, Lord, let us take it further than a baby in a manger. Let us not stop short of your predetermined plan of of a death and a resurrection. Lord, open our minds to, to the beauty, to the glory of Christ's death. May we not just ride Christmas out. May we, may we not just survive it, but may we seize the opportunity to worship you with all our hearts for everything you have done in sending Jesus to earth and to the cross that we could even be here in this moment savoring your glorious grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.